Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are speaking with Canadian singer, songwriter, and performer, Theo Tams. Theo and I actually connected on TikTok. It didn't take long before I was just loving his account, how he shares, how he does his lives. And we were connecting the DMs. And I just knew that he was somebody that could bring so much value to this show. So I definitely pitched him and he was all in for it. So this is a fantastic episode that's coming. Theo has been playing music since his teens and releasing music for the past 15 years. He has three albums, as well as a number of singles that he has released, including the most recent Losing My Religion by the remake by R.E.M. And it is such a powerful song and rendition that he has shared. Oh, also, Theo was the sixth season winner of Canadian Idol in 2008. Just, you know, something small to go with it. Theo has put together a body of work that is substantial and diverse, and it speaks of an artist whose mission is growth and adventure. Theo lives in Toronto with his partner and their 11-year-old daughter, and he explains that to understand where he's going, it is important to know where he has been until now. Born and raised in a small town of Coaldale in South Alberta, Tams was raised in a very strict Christian household learning to sing in church, two services on Sunday, with a family that was steeped in music. He began writing poetry and prose pieces as a teenager and gradually moving towards songwriting, influenced by the likes of Jewel, as well as Canadian storytellers such as Sarah McLaughlin, Alanis Morissette, Sarah Harmer, and Sarah Sleen. After a series of rock-bottom moments that he shares today on this episode, Theo says he took the plunge of spontaneous sobriety in 2020 and declaring himself finished and embarking on therapy that has made a world of difference in his healing. This is such a true, honest, raw, powerful episode. Theo shares his story as a Canadian Idol winner sharing his open and vulnerable story, dealing with addiction, and how he's found his way to where he is today. He also shares so much of what it's like to be in the public eye and to deal with the criticism and hate, which still blows my mind that this happens, but it does, as he continues to support the LGBTQ community and how he has actively worked to build a community to surround and support others. And If you're on TikTok, seriously, please follow Theo. I am one of his subscribers because I love, I will just work and tune in while he's live and I listen and I love it. And he has built a community of people who love and support the work that he does. So I am so honored to share this raw, honest, real, and heartfelt conversation with you today. 
Welcome to the show today, Theo. I am so thrilled to have you here and have this conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So this is the one of my favorite parts about social media is that, you know, sometimes people come across our path and we'll share a little bit, but I think your music came across my for you page on TikTok. But and I loved your music. So there's no but there. Absolutely loved it. But I love the story. <laughs> the more you started to share mm. your backstory, I was like, oh, wait, I want to learn more. And I think that's the piece, right? Is our stories help us to connect more to each other. And as I just started to listen to you, more of who you are, your backstory, I was like, oh, absolutely love the connection. So I just started following. And then all of a sudden, you started following back and we started just connecting. Mm-hmm. And I just absolutely loved it. Uh, I mean, yeah, I agree. I love that. It's like you said, it's the wonderful thing about social media these days is like these kind of connections and sparks that happen so randomly. But yeah, it's definitely a very, very interesting thing for sure. Yes. And as all things, it has its pros and cons, right? Like as all things, Mm -hmm. there's there's pros and cons. Exactly. Oh, yes. So I would love it if you would just share a little bit about who you are and what you do. We're going to dive into parts of your story. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm. My name is Theo Tams. I live in Toronto now, but uh, I'm originally a small town Alberta boy. Um, I'm a musician, a singer, songwriter who's kind of been living in that world for the past, I guess, 15 years now i took the idol route so i was on canadian idol i was on the last season of that show back in 2008 which is wild because in some ways it feels like such a recent memory and in in other in other ways it feels like you know even longer than that uh but yeah so i've been kind of uh living in this world of being you know a working artist musician and um yeah that's i guess that's kind of me in a nutshell Mm, okay, so you were on the last season. How old were you when you were on that season? So I turned 23 when I was on the show, uh, which is so, even that alone is so wild to me because I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, at least I'm not super young when I'm on this show because I know that there was winners who had been on that show that were 17 when they won, you know, and, you know, 19 and, you know, even 20. And I remember being very thankful that I was, you know, a solid 23. And, you know, I had my shit together. <laughs> like Now I look back and I was like 23. Like I might as well have been, you know, 15, because I feel like I was such a baby in so many ways. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, you know, I am thankful that I had done at least a tiny bit of adulting, maybe at that point. Sliver. (laughs) It's a sliver. It's okay. I think back to my 23 year old self who thought she knew exactly everything that she was doing. And it was like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's sometimes the naivety is like so good because you don't know what you don't know Mm -hmm. yet. Um, What was that like competing in that? um, And you didn't just compete in the show, right? There's a little bit more to your story, but you. Um, you were just a contestant. It right. kind of went further than <laughs> yeah. that. If we, it's a, you're safe yeah, yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I mean, I ended up winning, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, uh, I mean, that whole entire experience for me, and I, I talk about it kind of in two different levels. I talk about it in the professional stream and then the personal stream. So professionally, it was, you know, a very, very cool experience. But mm-hmm. I mean, those shows are... 
um, you know, without biting the hand that that fed me, so to speak, those shows are, you know, first and foremost, they're TV shows. They are about ratings and the network. Um, so even though Canadian Idol is built, you know, upon these, you know, uh, building blocks of a talent competition, um, in so many ways, uh, it's it's so much more than that and and less than that too you know it it's definitely the the focus is of building a tv show so as much as it's a reality show you know the fact that they even referred to us as you know a cast of this show it, it kind of shows that they are they are casting and they are editing characters so to speak um but personally for me so much more than professionally that show was you know of so much importance to me um you know, like I said, I grew up in Southern Alberta, really, really small town, uh, conservative um, environment, a town called Coldale, about maybe 15 minutes uh, to Lethbridge. Uh, so Lethbridge was the big city, yeah. um, you know, and uh, I knew very, very early on in my life that I was gay. Um, and I had just come out to my parents about six months prior to being on Canadian Idol. I hadn't really told anyone else. I hadn't told uh, my sisters or extended family. I haven't to told the majority of my friends. I think maybe one or two close friends kind of knew at that point. Um, so when I was on the show, actually the very first live show, I ended up coming out accidentally i dropped a pronoun him i was referring to an old relationship and i said i had to tell him uh that it was too late to apologize as saying apologize by one republic and so i essentially you know came out on national tv which was you know not the way i had intended to kind of uh go through that that process but um you know that looking back i feel like um there was it was terrifying, but there was also so much freedom in that one small moment, mm -hmm. uh, because even though there was a bit of backlash from this conservative environment that I was in, there was also, you know, a flood of overwhelming support, uh, which I don't think I would have gotten if I didn't do it in that way. So the support definitely kind of negated the clap back. Mm -hmm. um, but I did know in in that moment because that was the very first live show there were still 24 of us left competing and my only drive at that point was just make it to the next week make it to the next week so that you'll hopefully have enough connections to stay in toronto and you don't have to go back to that environment so personally idol was and i say it all the time personally idol was like this almost very calculated escape route for me to just get me out of Southern Alberta. That's what I was really hoping for. So the fact that I won and ended up getting all these, you know, really wonderful music opportunities was kind of a, a, a bonus. A bonus. <laughs> I love how you shared that. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because um, you might have a, when we have a, a part of ourselves or a story that we want to share, that's maybe uncomfortable to do. We have this picture of how we're going to do it and how it's going to look and how it might be received. And then all of a sudden it happens in a completely different way and you share it, right? Like I'm sure it wasn't an easy experience sharing it with your family. Um, Cause again, we're talking, I, it's so, I so sad that I even think of these things being difficult, but it is. And I, and mm -hmm. I can, 
understand this piece, but to share it with family. And then, okay, so that was a lot of work. And at least I did that. And then all of a sudden it's like openly on TV. Now it's like, oh, mm-hmm. well, I guess everybody knows now. So I guess it's 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 out there and it opens up doors. Yeah. And, and I'm sure, like you said, you got some backlash, but what was it outweighed more by the support? Or how did you handle that as a 23-year-old? I mean, I think the nice thing about being on that show was that we were so protected by this bubble Mm -hmm. that, you know, everything you're kind of, you know, you're not really dealing with the public that much. All of your interactions with the public and with media are supervised. So everything was very, very, very contained. Mm -hmm. Um, And keep in mind, too, this was 2008. So this was kind of the beginning of social media. You know, like we all had kind of, we all had Facebook-ish, but Facebook definitely wasn't what it is now. There was no Instagram. Twitter was just kind of launching, uh, but there was no TikTok. There was no, you know, music streaming was completely different. The way that people were consuming music was different. So, and I also feel like when social media first kicked off, there was kind of like this, it was like this caged animal that had been let loose. We didn't really know you know, how to use social media in the way that we do now, which can still kind of be a little bit cringy. But I think back then it was, there was a mean streak to social media. People finally felt like they could say whatever they wanted to say from, you know, their little keyboards. And uh, so that I think was when I was on the show and while the show was filming, uh, I felt very protected. It wasn't until after I had won and they swept up the confetti And kind of, you know, I was, you know, this newly crowned winner with, you know, 50 grand in my pocket, living in Toronto, coming from Coldale, Alberta, that I was just like, whoa, this is a lot. This Mm -hmm. is a lot of pressure. And there was so much hateful, you know, vitriol coming through on social media, you know, everything from, you know, people saying they were embarrassed that a, a faggot won Canadian Idol to you know legit death threats and you know now we we see these things happening on social media and they are so shut down immediately by the general public but back then that was just i don't want to say it was the norm but it was much more acceptable to be that hateful on these platforms uh so that was a huge kind of learning curve you know i tell everyone i feel like the first year post idol was like industry 101 and it was just this crash course of what being in the public eye could potentially look like both the highs and the lows of that wow what a powerful example to share thank you for that because i found myself going back to that time and i was raising teens who were preteens who were just starting um we were one of the la- there were some of the last kids to get phones, but we were in this space of where we were dealing with substance abuse with teens and a young age. And I'll tell mm. you, social media was a and Snapchat were a very scary part of what was happening at that time. And mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to parent, trying to navigate parenting through a really difficult time. And I didn't even understand social media. And people would say, you need to figure it out for your kids. And I'm like, okay, I'm trying to parent over here, trying to do this. And I'm trying to like, what Mm -hmm. is this? What is social media over here? Because again, we just had 
we just started with Facebook, but they were like they the amount of exactly. different platforms were exploding fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I do have this, and even now, and I'm sure you do too. In a way, I think we all do. There is just this love hate relationship yeah. with yep. social media in general. I love these communities that I've been able to build and foster, and I'm so thankful for them. But on the other side, there are moments where I'm like, oof, like this is not what I feel like I signed up for as an artist. You know, like I wanted to create music and share my stories through my music um, and kind of let that speak for itself and then be, you know, removed from it. But unfortunately, uh, in some ways, I say unfortunately, and like I said, there is this, it is a double-edged sword, you know, like like so many things. Um but it's not enough these days. I think that to be any type of a musician or doesn't really matter what your medium is, I think, um, and it's why I love this podcast because so many people are resonating with people who are authentically Mm -hmm. sharing their stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, because unfortunately, there are still so, so many people who feel as though they can't, or they don't know how. Um, so anytime that, that my, my dislike for social media creeps in and I just want to, you know, delete all my accounts and, you know, go into obscurity, I come back to the fact that there is still such an important responsibility to sharing these parts of ourselves as vulnerable and, uh, intense sometimes as, as it can be to put yourself out there. I still try to always come back to the importance of it. I love the way that you just shared that. And I think that the, I'm going to, I almost want to call it like a slingshot. It's sometimes it's a slingshot feeling. Sometimes it's like, okay, this is amazing. And other times it's like, oh my God, no, I don't, I don't want to do it. So I really, (laughs) I, I learned my own boundaries, right? There are times where if I don't want to do it, I don't make myself do it because I feel like I Mm. have to, that's not authentic. Um, and I think that's a really important piece. And I do believe that people like to connect to stories and who you are and what you've walked through because we like to con- like, that's how we build connection is by learning more and sharing more of who we are. And yes, that can be scary, but it's, what do we focus on? What we focus on is what we see. And when I see you going, live you've got you have built a community so that if a comment comes in it doesn't take long before like someone slams it down they're blocked and deleted like it's really fast mm-hmm. is that something that you have found that you're su- not this surprised about but something that you see frequently as far as your account like do you still get the negative comments i know you did a few months ago you were getting Ooh. really Oh, sorry. Big <laughs> yeah. question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say that in terms of like my, my, you know, very kind of curated, tight knit community, it's mm-hmm. very, very minimal. Um, and they are, you know, we're all kind of extremely protective of each other. I wanted to build, especially on TikTok, I wanted to build a community that I felt I could kind of show up in whatever space I was in, um, you know, at the end of the day, I am, you know, uh, an artist. I am 
a cancer. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, fiercely loyal to those that I love, but I also have moments where my crab claws kind of come out and I can be moody and intense and emotional and all of these things. And I really wanted to create a space where I could be all of those things, you know, that I didn't feel like I had to wear this mask that I feel so many people in the public eye feel like they have to wear where everything is presented in like this perfectionist, you know, my life is so grand all the time. And, uh, you know, I'm hashtag blessed. Like, that's just, it's so not me, no. you know? And I, I feel like I have to, I just wanted to keep it a hundred. I wanted to keep it real. And I also wanted to extend that type of grace to my community and say, you know, if you come in and you are, you know, full-fledged having an incredible day and you want to share it with us, please do. But if you're hurting, if you're frustrated, if you're angry, if you're bitter, please tell us. We can make space for those things too. Um, and I think in doing so, this community has become very protective of each other. So we try to shut down hateful rhetoric uh, as soon as possible. But on the grand scale of social media, I would say that I am constantly i don't want to say if i'm surprised necessarily but maybe baffled a little bit at the amount of hate that there is still specifically towards uh the lgbtq community it's it's shocking to me i feel like in the last five years we have gone so far backwards and i think what shocks me the most is that like often members of my community and I, I say that very broadly um we we're not even necessarily asking to be understood i think we're just simply asking for respect and kindness and i don't know where i think that's what's like i said what's most shocking and confusing to me is like where did we lose that as a society that if we disagree with someone that it's an excuse to be unkind and i think that's just something that is uh like i said has has been really presenting itself specifically for me over the past uh three four months and uh you know i have a pretty a pretty thick skin i'm I, if anything, I kind of like to have fun with the way I respond to these people. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like if you can do things with with humor and lightheartedness, uh, then you may even be able to make more of an impact in your response. Um, but yeah, it's been challenging and, and surprising. Oh, thank you for sharing all of that. And a couple things that um, I just want to say <clears throat> that for anybody who's listening is, it's if you listen to what Theo's saying, you created what you wished you had. You created a community that you mm -hmm. wish you had. So if you don't have, if you're listening and you don't have what you want community-wise, you can create it. It 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 does take work, but you can create it. And you know, when I think that was one of the first things that really caught me when you were sharing your story. You had one post and and I, I still I still can't even believe somebody said this. But you're right. There's a lot of hate that's out there. I think people some people are unfortunately sitting in a space of behind their device and you know mm -hmm. the second an opportunity is there, they just are all over it. And I often think like is that how you would actually act 
to a person in real life. Mm -hmm. Like I used to teach at a college and this would be about 10 years ago. And I, one of the students sent me an email in September and I actually read it and I'm like, he did not say that. Like it was like, it was offensive. It was rude. It was swearing. So I decided like, and I mean, September. Okay. So it's a two-year program we just started. And so right. I, yeah, right. I said to him, can you stay after class? And I said, um, can you do me a favor? I want you to read your message to me out loud. And he started to read it and he got to about like the second line. And he was like, oh, that's not how I meant it. I said, but you see how it sounds, right? And mm-hmm. he was like, yeah, but that's not how I meant it. I said, well, let's just paint a picture here. It's September. You have me for two more years. That email alone could kick you out of school. I'm not right. going to. But I want you to understand, like, that's not okay. And honestly, probably one of my best students after that, like one of my best students. Wow. And he was so good. But it was this this message that he said, I never thought of it from someone else's point of view. And I know that sounds so obvious, but he was a smart kid. And he was like, I never thought of it from someone else's point of view. And I'm like, you should every single time. You should imagine Mm -hmm. that you're speaking to a person face-to-face with no device. Would you say those words? And so I think there's that piece of it. The other thing is that what really caught my eye about your account is how you share some of the hateful comments that come, but in such a spin way on humor that I love, Mm. I love that I've done that. I get some nasty hate comments and I always say, if you actually want me to stop showing up, you've got the wrong person. Like I'm going to take your comments and I'm going to spin them into content all day long. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, that was one thing that even I was in conversations with my team about. And I was just like, because they were checking in. I have a really wonderful team from record label to publisher. And they were just like, you know, how you doing, buddy? Like we've, we've seen, you know, everything that's coming your way. Like, how are you holding up? And, you know, it's just like, it's, it's hurtful. And it's, you know, challenging to kind of see the state of, you know, the state of things right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But the blessing in disguise is I have a lot of content. (laughs) Like I have, I can use so much of this to, uh, and like you said, if you don't have your community or what you need, go and build it. Because I can take these hateful comments and I can, you know, respond with humor and I can find, you know, potentially another 20, 50, 100, 500 people to be a part of my tribe, Mm -hmm. just simply based on how I'm responding to hate. Uh, And I think that, so that's what you really have to start looking at is, um, I learned very, very early on, I think that um, you can respond as a victim or you can respond to an opportunity. And I, I'm really, and it's so much easier said than done. Believe me, there are times when I just want to live in that victim space. And sometimes that's okay too, I think. Um, But I really try to respond to, to opportunity. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. And there's nothing wrong if you have moments where you're as the victim, where you're just trying to gather what's happening. I have this little acronym thing that I use that when I feel myself in victim is that, you know, it's like driving through a valley. I can drive through the valley of victim. I can slow down. I can take my time. I have my moments, but if I pull the car over 
unpack, buy property and choose to live there, that's also a choice mm-hmm. too. And I don't want to stay in that space because nothing changes then. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I appreciate you sharing that because you're like, it's to me, you're right. It's very sad for me that it feels like we have gone backwards with um, Mm -hmm. so many, um, how we treat others and how we are showing up and that, you know, being different is not okay. And as hard as it is, how, like how you respond to hate says a lot about like you as a person, anyone who's listening And I almost feel like you have this platform because you're able to show people how it can be done differently. Like, how can you navigate some of these comments? How can you still take Mm -hmm. this, not make it mean anything and still show up and do what you're here to do? And not, I'm not saying that as a pressure. I'm saying that as like, I believe that we're all walking in the paths that even if they're hard, sometimes we're actually somebody who can do something with it. Exactly. I think the way that these, especially my TikTok platform has evolved and has changed, and I think it will continue to, um, is has been the most surprising yet very beautiful thing about it is that, um, you know, when I was simply using my TikTok for just music, that's all I was posting was, you know, cover after original after cover. Um, and the build was slow, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. it was slow. And when I look back on it, I'm like, it's so interesting because I was getting a lot of love, you know, great voice, love your music, love your presence, whatever. But there was a disconnect because people didn't have something to latch onto. They, they didn't know how to root for me because they didn't know me. And I think the way to really start building a tribe of people is to give them something to root for, to cheer for, and to feel in, in, you know, a symbiotic relationship that you're rooting for them too. And you are giving them content to empower themselves. So I started talking about when I really, really started to use TikTok as a platform and go live, you know, four or five times a week, I was maybe two weeks into getting sober and I didn't know how to be sober. So I just started going on TikTok live and I would talk to strangers about it because it felt a whole lot less confrontational than talking to my partner or my friends or my family or my, my professional network of people who really knew me. It felt so much easier to just talk to strangers and be like, today's hard. And to just be able to say that and not have to say more. You know, if I say today's really hard to my partner, there's going to be questions, there's going to be follow up, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's what I needed was to just be able to show up as I was, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I started to, you know, every single time I would go live, I would end up getting 100, 200, 300 new followers just from talking and I was like this is very interesting because <laughs> this has nothing to do with my music nope. or my career so to speak but that's when I really started to learn this is about and it's how the music industry has shifted so much this is about branding and if I can show up authentically with 
you know, my hair all a mess and I'm in a tank top and I'm crying about how hard it is to get sober. And I can find a tribe of people who, you know, are supportive and are interested in this story and who can share theirs and I can get support from them and they can get support from me. Then I am essentially building an audience for when I release (laughs) this music that is an extension of who I am. Um, so it was, that was maybe two and a half years ago or two years, three months ago. I think it was January of 2021 that I really started to dig in to the platform and, you know, I'm coming up on like 150,000 followers now. And, uh, I don't want to say the majority I know by name, but uh, I would say that there's a good solid crew that I've really, really gotten to know. And it's been uh, such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that. And I just, I think the one thing I want to make sure that people catch is you didn't, you have to give people something to root for. You have to give them something to connect with you with. And yes, mm-hmm. they loved your music. Yes, they love what you were doing, but there's still nothing to latch on. They didn't know the story. And all of a sudden it's like, all right, well, let's just try it this way. Let's just share because it's going to support me at the same time too. And I Mm -hmm. love that. And that is you going first and then others saying, oh, wait, like it's almost like this permission that it's okay to show up and be real and be seen. And it's not scary, right? Like we all, we can build this tribe and community. And I absolutely love that. Absolutely love that. So as you, you shared, it's been two, two and a half years, not two and a half years since you've been sober. Yeah. Coming up June, June 6th will be two and a half years. So yeah, coming up on it. <laughs> what, a, what a, I mean, a, to say, if there is anyone listening who struggles with substance abuse, like, I just want you to know that I love you so much. And I know that battle. I never thought ever, I was just talking to my mom about this a couple of days ago. And I said, I never thought ever that this would be my life. I never thought that I would get to the point that I could say, you know, two years, four months, you know, 12 days sober. I never thought ever. I was having the hardest time getting a day or two days. If I got three days in a row without drinking, I was over the moon. I was, I just thought that that was incredible. So the fact that it's, it's gone this far, not without its challenges and its hardships. Um, but I'm just, if there was any time that I would say hashtag blessed, it would be now, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you're allowed to use that. I'm going to use it now. You can use that. (laughs) I I do want to dive into that if that's okay with you, because I I think it will Mm -hmm. help to shed some light for people because I've actually had a number of people that I've had conversations with and connections. And I don't want people listening to think that it was like I decided and then I was stone sober and then it was a piece of cake. What what Mm. was that process like for you? And how did you get to the point of saying, okay, this is not working. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be dependent in this way. So what was that part like for you? (sighs) I mean, I had known that my drinking was a problem for years. I would say probably 
close a decade, if not longer, of knowing that these behaviors were not not the norm. You know, and I, I I struggle with the word normal because when it comes to things like drinking or even pot, like what what is normal use of these substances? Uh, so I try my best to kind of steer away from that type of verbiage. But um, I had just known that these were problematic behaviors. Um, I think in the last few years of my drinking, I surrendered to it. I surrender to this is my life. I am, I'm just a daily drinker. And the way that we, I think as addicts, um, at least for me, we are masters at justifying our habits and our use. I don't think that you will, and I don't think I've ever said this in an interview, Um, but I would say if you talk to an addict who is being honest, I will, I would say that they will probably tell you that they are a master manipulator. Mm -hmm. I was very, very good and still can be very, very good at manipulating things to hide the truth and to hide the pain. Um, it's only been since getting sober that I've kind of really, really learned to, you know, like well, like we talked about before, just show up authentically. And if that's hurt and in pain and angry and bitter, then I, I allow space for those things. Because when I didn't allow space for those things, I found the space at the bottom of a bottle, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, but I think my journey into sobriety kind of, was very, very, very long. I kind of started joining, um, and I encourage those who are struggling to do the same, it's just tiptoe into Soberland. You don't have to, you know, strip down into your skizzies and dive right into being sober. I encourage you to just tiptoe into the waters. I joined a bunch of Facebook groups, um, And I started following a bunch of sober Instagram accounts and sober curious accounts and just started to, you know, we talk about people's stories, just started to gain knowledge from people's stories who were going through the same thing and seeing these people who were like, you know, I can't keep doing this anymore. And, you know, I I had three months and then I drank and I'm right back to square one. And meanwhile, I'm still drinking daily, but I'm collecting information um so i was probably members of those groups and still drinking the worst i ever drank for about a year and a half but i look back on that as still the start of kind of at least entertaining what sobriety looked like maybe not for me but what it looked like for other people so that was key and then um i had tried in probably that year and a half, countless ways of moderation. You know, I had tried, okay, no more hard liquor, only beer, um, you know, and then no beer, only vodka sodas, if they're in a pint glass, and then, you know, only two, three drinks a day, and then only can drink on the weekends. And like, I sometimes those things would work for like 
two weeks or three weeks. Mm -hmm. And then I would find the best excuse to not follow them anymore. Like I wrote a really great song in the studio. Let's have shots Mm -hmm. or the studio sucked today. It was really hard. Let's do shots, you know, or I had a really great conversation with my dad. Let's go out and celebrate with a couple bottles of champagne, you know, or I had a really shitty conversation with my dad. Let's numb it with some champagne. So I was very, very good at finding all the reasons to drink and never entertaining the reasons why I shouldn't until everything had kind of come full circle. And I was so low. My drinking was, like I said, it was extremely problematic for years and years, but it really slipped during COVID when I was home alone and my partner was working. And then all of a sudden this checklist of things that I had that proved to myself that I didn't have a problem, you know, i.e., not drinking in the morning or, um, you know, I, uh, I wouldn't drink alone or I wouldn't lie about how much I drank. All of a sudden, all of these things that I held myself to, those were gone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I started drinking first thing that I woke up and I started hiding bottles. I remember my, my partner came home from work. Um, he got home around seven o'clock and he found like a magnum, a big ass bottle of wine in the recycling and a box of wine in the recycling that I had drank that day. That was one day. And he was like, who did you have over today? And I was like, no one. (laughs) He was like, well, who drank all this wine? And I was just like, I did. And he's just like, what? Like, and I was just like, well, I like mixed it with soda. Like I was just having spritzers all day. I was just kind of chilling out and, And that was even like a moment for me of like, holy crap, like that's a lot. That's, you know, five and a half liters Mm -hmm. of wine. And the terrifying thing was that I didn't even feel like I had a buzz. Wow. And I was like, this is, this is scary because I knew for years that I had become emotionally dependent on alcohol. Mm -hmm. This was the first kind of wake up call that I was like, I am, I'm physically dependent on it. My body needs this now to hit equilibrium. And that was terrifying. That was probably August or September of 2020. And then it was the next three months of, I think I call it like my breaking point phase, where I think I was almost trying my hardest to hit rock bottom so I could have a reason to quit. And I started throwing myself into the worst forms of drinking that one could. I would binge drink hard on weekends, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, um, and then coast throughout the week just to go hard again on Friday, if not Thursday. Um, and I started having these really, really terrifying rock rock bottom moments where, I mean, I remember waking up on my patio at like four o'clock in the morning. I hadn't even made it inside Um, there was one time where I was, uh, off to work and I, I stopped to use the washroom and I noticed bruising on my, my neck, my shoulder. So I kind of lifted up my shirt and I was bruised. My whole left side of my body was bruised and checked down my hip, down to my knee. The the entire left side of my body was bruised. And I just started panicking because I was like, what happened? Like, I had no recollection of the night before. I know that I drank, but I don't know where I ended up or anything like that. I was in complete blackout mode. So I went to the doctor and 
I showed the kind of triage nurse these injuries. And she was like, yeah, man, like we need to get you a doctor ASAP. So a doctor came and we did x-rays and he kind of came back. And I, I was very honest about that. I drank to the point of blacking out. And the doctor said to me, you know, I can't say this conclusively, but the the only time I've really seen injuries like this is when someone's been hit by a car. And oh I was like, gosh. uh, so I did, there is potential that I was walking across the street or walked into traffic and got hit by a car. And I was so blacked out that I don't even know. So I don't, and you know, he was just like, do you know where you were? We could look for cameras, see if it was a hit and run. And I was just like, whether it was, or I mean, it could have been a hit and run, but it also could have been the driver stopped and I got up and said, Oh, I'm fine. You know, like I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, and that was October. And then maybe mid-October, and then I finally quit uh, December 6th of 2020. And I don't know any other way to describe it than just this this clairvoyant experience in a sense. And I know that that sounds all hocus-pocusy, but I was walking my dog and I had caught my reflection in a, a storefront window, just a shopper's drug mart window, where they have those kind of floor to ceiling, you know, glass windows. And I caught my reflection, but it was not the only way to describe it is was it wasn't this catch your reflection where you check your hair or you check your outfit or something's on your face. I made eye contact with myself and I just became immediately physically sick. And I literally like threw up on the street and I, it wasn't because I was hungover. I was a professional professional drinker at the time. I never I never got hungover. This was this sickness of of who I was, of who I had become, and it was terrifying to me. And I remember going home to my partner, and I went into the fridge and I grabbed a beer, and I said to him, "This is going to be my last drink." And he was like, "Okay." You know, sure. He had kind of heard it all before. Yeah. Uh, he had he had seen me kind of go through these moments of like, I'm going to slow down, like I'm going to quit. Okay, okay. You know, like he would kind of at that point, I think he was kind of over even trying to be supportive because this was a pattern that he had seen numerous times. Um, and that's another thing. I just want to quickly say this before I finish that story is like getting sober is what makes it so hard, but also the most rewarding is that you are only accountable to yourself. That, and I think that has been something that has been life-changing for me. Uh, but yeah, so I, I went home and I said, this is gonna be my last drink. And I went upstairs and I, I cuddled my dog and I cracked this like super ice cold. I remember it was a milkshake, a double milkshake IPA. I loved like the hoppiest, skunkiest beers imaginable, probably because they were highest in alcohol. Who's kidding who? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and I just remember sipping it nice and slow and just starting to like sob, like uncontrollably being like, this is it. This is, this is the last one. And surprisingly, and so thankfully, I have not really looked back since that moment. Oh, that is amazing. Thank you for like just going there and for sharing that, honestly, because it's it just paints the real picture of what it can what it can be like and what it takes 
to get to a space of making that decision and saying, yeah, we're done. Like we're done, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting. Like I can just resonate and I can hear in a sense that, you know, almost deliberately trying to create a rock bottom so that it would happen. Mm -hmm. And then isn't it interesting that it is a moment when you come face to face with your own reflection and it's like, who is that? And how did this happen? How did I get exactly? I, as soon as I quit, I kind of, the very first thing I did was, um, cause I love words. I love words more than I love music. Words are like my, my favorite thing. Um, and I, so I just downloaded on my phone, all of the quit lit, all of the sober books I could find. And I can't remember in which one it is, but, uh, the author says, is talking about rock bottom moments and, the author says, rock bottom for me was simply when I decided to quit digging. And I was like, whoo. Oh, like, I, right. I was like, I wish I knew that before because I was like, I was, and I find so many people who are struggling with addiction and substance abuse, they use this rock bottom concept as an excuse to continue using because nothing that's happened has been that bad, you know? And I think, you know, for me too, like I said, I almost threw myself into this. Okay. I really need to make something crazy happen so that I can finally have a reason to, to stop this madness. And, you know, even potentially getting hit by a car, wasn't it? No, you know, so it's, it's amazing the way that we'll, we'll continue to justify, to make excuses. Um, so, like I said, if, if anyone's listening who is struggling with it, just know that like your rock bottom can be now. Just put the shovel down, you know, and stop start digging. getting out. Yeah, stop digging. Just keep, just start the ascent out of this hole of addiction, you know? And it's it's really interesting too, because I've been asked the question, you said that you knew it was a problem. So why didn't you get help sooner? And my answer is because I didn't care enough to, I did not, I did not love myself enough to quit. I, and I think that that's the biggest takeaway that I have learned from getting sober is that you do not necessarily heal the addiction, you heal the pain that's causing it. And for me, that was paramount. Not drinking, once I was over the brutal withdrawal that lasted a couple weeks for me, um, once I was over that, the physical act of not drinking was quite easy and still to this day is quite easy. I have my moments of cravings and of FOMO, you know, kind of missing out on on the partiers and the patios and, and all that stuff. But the actual act of not drinking is quite easy. There are many delicious alcohol-free options that I can put in my belly. I am just fine. Mm-hmm. But the the tricky thing is, and what still makes sobriety hard, is I never drank because I loved the taste of a cold beer. I never drank because I loved a margarita. I drank because I wanted to escape. Yeah. So... Sometimes when I get in these moments where I'm feeling overwhelmed with 
you know, family issues or work issues or work pressure or music industry pressure or, you know, uh, relationship issues, you know, with my fiance and like we're planning this wedding now, which is a whole other, you know, element of pressure and intensity. And I have these moments still almost two and a half years in where I was like, oh, like I just want to get hammered so I cannot feel this for a bit. And that's where that, you know, addictive monster comes in saying, you know, you deserve it. You deserve an escape for a bit. So that's what's tricky. Um, And I think I have resigned myself to the fact that I will always have that little monster on my shoulder. I think that that's what addiction is. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the further along I get, the quicker I am to be able to tell him to shut the hell up and, you know, move forward. So, um, I mean, at least I, at least I really genuinely hope and pray that that's the case. I, I am just going to put it out there that yes, it is because I can feel like you have a perspective and recognizing that that little devil is always there and it's part of, mm-hmm. it's part of you and it, it, it's a very slippery slope, right? It can be a slippery slope. And for some people, it's, I think it can get really tricky when we think we will never struggle again. Like we will never, I, I actually think that's a very scary slippery slope is thinking mm-hmm. we're not going to struggle with this anymore, no matter what the problem is. But there's so like, there's just, there's so much that you shared that I am sitting in and listening to because um, I've dealt with it from the other side and I've dealt with Mm. it and seen it from the other side. And Mm -hmm. it's so interesting because there's just so many aha moments that I'm having right now and listening to. And one of the things that speaking of somebody from the other side, people used to say all the time is like, maybe this is the rock bottom moment. Maybe this is the rock bottom moment. I'm like, I finally got to a point where I'm like, you know what? I can't apply my definition of a rock bottom moment to their scenario because I would have hit rock bottom like a year ago. Like we have different, we have different points of what the rock bottom is. And so that's why I think it's like, we can't judge what that is. There's a turning point for everyone. It, it doesn't even matter about addiction. It's a turning point in creating a change in a behavior, right? There's a turning right. point for every person and it's different. And so I think that's a, a piece, right? That I'm sure even for your partner, like that's a, that's a challenging spot to be in is just like, how do I navigate this and how do I support and still do, but allow them to make the decision? Because, you know, I'm sure it would be a very different situation if he had come into the situation saying, okay, this is what you have to do. I mean, if it's not your decision, you're not going to take it as far as what you've done right now. It's just, I mean, I wish that it was as simple as that. I wish it was as simple as when you see someone struggling for you to say, this is unhealthy, you need to stop this. And for them to be like, oh, okay, Okay. (laughs) great. I'll do that. You know, I I wish it was that easy because then I could have been saved a lot of hellish trouble and I could have stopped myself from putting a lot of other people through hellish trouble. You know, I wish it was that simple. Um, You have to make that decision for yourself. You just, you have to. And it's, uh, it's, 
the trickiest thing. You know, I still have a number of people in my life that I'm close to that are, you know, kind of still slaves in a way to their own addiction. And that is, uh, that is so difficult. And, you know, I, I really just have to look at what is mine to carry and, and it's, that's not mine, you know, um, I will always be a resource. I will always be a listening ear. I will always be able to offer advice if it's called upon. Um, but when it comes to addiction in particular, the only person who can make that change is that person mm-hmm. and they have to. And that's what I say. It comes down to self love. I, I really do believe that you have to believe that you are worth more than the life you are living. And that is, I think that's what was so difficult for my support network, my friends, my partner, my family. Um, I would say there was maybe two people in my entire life that when I said I was done drinking, they were like, okay, thank God, like Mm -hmm. you, this is a problem. But the majority, my family, even my partner, for the most part, uh, he knew that I drank. He knew that I drank a lot. He, even in this last couple of years of sobriety, as I do these interviews, he'll listen and he'll be like, I didn't know about that. I didn't know about that. I was so good at keeping everything under lock and key. You know, I was, and this is, I think, what's what's so important, you know, of of my story in particular is that not every person who struggles with alcohol is drinking a Mickey of vodka out of a paper bag in a park passed out. We are, we are, you know, we are successful artists. We are doctors. We are lawyers. We are stockbrokers. We are teachers. We are nannies. We are everyone. We are everywhere. Addicts are everywhere in all class of life in all, you know, in all jobs, we do not look like one thing. And I think that the stigma surrounding addiction is that you'll know when someone's out of control, you'll see it all over them. And while there were definitely elements in my life that from the outside, I think looked possibly a little bit chaotic, I was a master at presenting myself as though everything is just fine. And I think that's what, when I look now being so, it makes me emotional to even say because it was just, that was exhausting to have to present myself and my life as though I wasn't drowning. It was so hard to do. And that's why so many things about being sober, I love, but I think the thing that I love the most is that I just don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I, I, and I, I love these conversations. You know, even my mom said to me, she's just like, when I first got sober, she was just like, I just want you to know that, like, I don't want you to be embarrassed about this. Mm. And I was like, embarrassed about what? Like, getting so I'm not embarrassed about getting sober. I should have been embarrassed when I was like passed out at the bar by myself for three. I, that's what should have been embarrassed. I have no embarrassment about getting sober. Well, I'll wear a hoodie that says, you know, sober as fuck. I'm not embarrassed about getting sober. Believe me. 
you know, but it is interesting because that's where her heart went that, you know, because there is still this stigma attached Mm -hmm. to addiction and sobriety and like, and, you know, I, I want to say specifically around alcohol and I try to be careful when I have these conversations because I don't want to sound like some, you know, crazy sober extremist that says, you know, alcohol is poison. And if you drink it in any way, you're drinking poison. Like, I don't ever want to do that, even though I, I think it's the truth. Um, so I'm just going to slip it in there. <laughs> but <laughs> the filters off. You, You've been like sober. Yeah. <laughs> it is. All good. Yeah. It's all good. But I mean, I think that, you know, alcohol is so glamorized in our society here i cannot even you know like i said i went for brunch with a friend of mine uh right before i hopped on this podcast and as i'm walking back there's this restaurant that's that's uh opening up shop for the day and their little chalkboards out and it says soup of the day whiskey you know and it's like this is we make fun of it it's it's we live in this society that not only encourages you to drink, but encourages you to drink daily, encourages you to drink more than you want to. How many times have you been to a bar and it says you can get a pint for $8 or you can get a pint and a shot for 10? You know, we are encouraged to drink more than we even want to. Uh, How many times have you seen, you know, little mugs or cups that say, you know, if it's not drinking alone, if the kids are home or mommy wine time, you know, we live in a society where alcohol is so glamorized that uh, it is the only substance that when you stop taking, people want explanations. You know, you tell people that you quit smoking cigarettes. Wow, good for you. That's awesome. Hey, guys, like, I just want you to know, like, I quit drinking. Why? Why? Some, did something happen? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, kind of. It's so weird. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Just I was ruining my life for the last 15 years. That's it, you know. But it's interesting because there is this like tiptoe around it Mm -hmm. and it points the finger. It's why I personally do not use the word alcoholic. I know that there's a lot of people who do and they're fine with that. Mm -hmm. It's an empowering word for them. For me, I don't use that word. Um, I... There is certain words like sober I choose to use that sits well with me. Alcoholic doesn't. And the reason why is because it points the finger at the person and it says, you have a problem. Mm -hmm. You couldn't handle it. We can all drink fine, but you have the issue. And the issue is not me. It's not you. The issue is alcohol. We are drinking a substance that science has told us if we drink and we drink it continually, we will build a tolerance to it. We will need more to get the same effect and we will become addicted to it. This is just science. And I always try to come back to fact. Uh, And listen, I have the majority of my friends still drink. I have no judgment toward people who drink. I'm the last person to judge anyone who drinks. But for me, I just wish I had more of the facts. You know, the FDA has already said if alcohol was not on the market, there's no way it would get there. Yeah. They have said themselves if it were off and someone was trying to launch it as a product, it would be no across the board. You know, Health Canada just came out saying that 
most likely, I think next year, if the bill passes, but there will be cancer warnings on every single bottle of alcohol that you can buy, whether that's beer, wine, spirits. Um, I don't know ex- the exact uh, numbers, but I know that it's it's exponential, the amount that alcohol increases your risk of for women, especially breast cancer. I think if you have even two drinks a week, you're increasing your chances of breast cancer by five, six times. It's It's wild. And yet, you know, that mommy wine time culture is so much louder than these warnings. So you just uh, said it right there. Like that culture is louder than the warnings. Um, Oh my gosh. I could literally talk to you for so long. And I just, I so love what you're sharing. There's so (laughs) much value there. There really is Um, a couple of the things that I am just hearing and they're landing for me. And I know I'm going to listen back and different things are going to land because there's so much value in what you're sharing is this piece on, um, we have glamorized, we have spent a lot of time glamorizing. I think the pandemic glamorized drinking. I'm going to say, especially for women, I'm going to say that I'm going Mm -hmm. to, I think that that's fair. I've had men reach out to me. I've had a couple of conversations with dads. The one blew me away. And he's like, I want to write a book. He said, I actually want to talk about the glamorizing of alcohol and women during COVID because Mm -hmm. we almost lost my wife because of it. And I still don't know how it's going to go. I have full custody of my teen girls. They were watching this firsthand. We tried to involve our doctor and our doctor was like, it's okay. It's the pandemic. It's hard on the moms, et cetera. And he's like, everywhere I turned, everybody was like, not just glamorizing it, but it was like, it's okay. Because, and he goes, no, it's not okay. My kids are finding her on the floor. It's not okay. And it's Mm. just, I, I love how you're sharing this because- Um, when we went through a lot of difficult times, people would say, well, it's just pot or it's just alcohol. It's just like, I actually think that any substance that you have to start your day with, that you have to end your day with, that you have, you need it to get through, that is like brings you up, calms you back down. It, like if we need it on a regular basis, it's a problem. It's a problem. Mm-hmm. And regardless of the substance that it is. And so I just, I'm so grateful that you shared from this, per, from your perspective, because that's going to land for so many different people, but seeing it as a way that helped you to escape a difficult, you know, difficult experience, difficult time to see it and understand that, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to just want to piggyback on this one thing for a second. You know, you said you didn't like the term alcoholic. I actually, we had to learn the hard way. Like those labels don't work because you're just shaming somebody with the behavior and there's no human that is going to change what they're doing. If you shame them, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. It's just not, right. it's not that we have to tiptoe. It's just not helpful at all. And so mm-hmm. when you talk about that piece, Especially if you're dealing with addiction, and I even think it's better to call it as an addiction than an addict personally, because it's now we're still Mm -hmm. labeling it's an addiction. And that when you're, when you're in that space of, you know, master manipulator to hide the addiction, you're literally just trying to hide the pain. And I think that's a key point because so many people, myself included, 
I, I learned very quickly how fast they can manipulate. I learned very, like very mm-hmm. quickly and right. how I handled it in the beginning was different how I handled it later, but you just gave me a different perspective to see it, that it was never intentional to hurt somebody else. It was in a sense to hide pain, right? To hide mm-hmm. pain that it's not that bad. So I just, I love how you shared that. I think that's a very valuable tip for people, especially who have walked in these shoes. Hmm. I mean, I think for me, it's like there's that whole element of of self-medicating, you know, that's what I really believe addiction is. You are, and when I was, you know, newly sober, even maybe before I made that choice, I started seeing these quotes from people who were sober saying that what I needed to get sober was I needed to create a life that I didn't want to run away from. Hmm. And I was like, oof. Like that was it just these little things that resonated with me being like, what have I not healed from yet? You know, what have I, what am I trying to numb? And, you know, and for me, that was, you know, a, a basket full of, you know, religious trauma, sexual abuse, um, you know, abandonment issues, there were so many things that, you know, I think as adults, um, I think especially as men, sometimes we look at these things and it's just very, at least for me, I was like, you know, I'm over that. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with that, uh, but clearly not. And it wasn't until you know, I got sober. And like I said, the physical act of not drinking was easy. But then going through the past 15 years, and trying to figure out why I was drinking the amount that I was, that's where the real work started. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and 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 still is ongoing. Mm-hmm. It's it's work. And it's a it's a deep dive into ourselves at all times, right? I really feel like that's that's the piece of it is that we're doing that work. So as you've done so much work over the last almost two and a half years in this area, how has that changed how you show up, how your relationships are, how your music, like being connected to writing, like Mm. what kinds of things are different in your life now because of that? I have said this countless times. I, I knew that getting sober was going to change my life. Mm-hmm. I was very, very naive to the fact that it was going to change every single aspect of my life. Mm-hmm. My relationship with my family is completely different than it was when I was drinking. That's awesome. Uh, my relationship with my partner is completely different now that I've quit drinking because I have the clarity to you know, to show up and be present, but I also have put in the work to be confident in what I ask for and what I need. I have, um, you know, the, the clear headspace to put up boundaries where there need to be boundaries. And, uh, in terms of my music, you know, I've music was the tricky one for me because music is, you know, 
probably one of the biggest loves of my life. And I wore the badge of being a tortured artist with so much pride. You know, I thought, I thought it's what made me good. I thought it's what gave me street cred was that I was this, you know, this really struggling, you know, emotional, intense person who struggles with substance abuse. And that just makes me have this weird street cred in a way, which is total horseshit, you know, and I was scared to go into the studio sober. It was terrifying because I was like, now we'll see if I, if my talent speaks for itself, can I create from a sober place? Uh, and that was, that was terrifying. And I think that the music and um, the momentum that my career has seen in the last two years, two and a half years speaks for itself. You know, my career has not been uh, this busy and this uh, fulfilled since right after Idol. Uh, oh, so this is, this is the best it's been in so many ways. Um, and you know, even just from like a physical, a physiology standpoint, you know, I love the fact that like my voice, my actual voice is doing things that it's never done before. You know, I'm singing two, three hours a day, which is something that I could never do when I was drinking the way that I was. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, um, I think the one thing that sobriety has really, really put into perspective for me, uh, and this is what I think I keep coming back to, something that really, really grounds me, is that I feel like we live in a society where we chase highs, we chase happiness, we chase joy, we chase excitement, and there is nothing wrong with that, I don't think. But for me... I no longer chase any of those things. I, I try to live in a space of contentment, which is just a word that I don't think we use enough as adults uh, in society. We don't talk what it means to be content. Uh, you know, we say, even to friends that we haven't seen in a while, we say like, are you happy? Are things good? Uh, because we want to hear that. We want to hear that they're happy and that things are good. Um, I ask all of my friends now, I say, are you content? Do you have a contentful life? Do you have a, do you have a peaceful life? Uh, because life is not always happy. Life is not always joy. It's not always excitement. Life is a lot of hard, you know, life is painful. Life is, and it sounds so emo for me to say, but I think it's just a reality. Life yes. is hard. Life is painful. Life is frustrating life is complicated it's very layered you know we are all just humans in this huge universe trying to figure out what the fuck to do half the time you know so all i ask for myself is just and for others is just you know let us just be able to sit with ourselves in our moment in our current situation whatever that may be and just feel moment of contentment and just be glad and thankful that we're here and that's uh, that's been such a game changer for me. And since I really started to implement that way of viewing my purpose here, it's amazing the amount of gifts and roads that the universe has been giving to me since I just 
stopped clinging and stopped strangling this thing that we call life, trying to get the most out of it at all times. Now I kind of just let it ebb and flow a little bit. Oh, there's just so much magic in what you just talked about there, because this piece of, I don't think you can actually can feel contentment until you can learn how to be present. Like, cause that's the mm. present moment. Right. And so it's a present mm. moment. I heard, I just heard this morning, Matthew McConaughey on a podcast. And he, one of the things he said was that stop asking about happiness because happiness is always a result of something. You equate it to have I achieved this, then I'll be happy. And happiness mm -hmm. is just, it's a slippery slope. He goes, I actually don't like to use the word happiness. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I was just, so it's funny how this right. um, comes up today, but content and being like present and grateful with where you are, I actually think is how you open up other opportunities and how you open up other mm -hmm. connections because you're not trying to rush to the next thing, right? You're, you're yeah. here today. And I think that is really powerful. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, I think that we live in this life sometimes where it's like we, we keep believing that true happiness and true success is around the corner. You know, it's, it's that job, it's that house, it's, you know, when I have that husband or that baby, then I'll finally have all the things I need to be happy. And all that does is rob us of being happy now. And happy now, I think, is what content is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, right? I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. So as you're um, really in this space and embodying all this space right now, what's next for you? Oh, I... I mean, if I'm getting married in the summer, so that's awesome. kind of taking all of my thank you. That's taking all of my like energy <laughs> at this point is uh, is um, yeah, just excited for the wedding and planning the wedding. Um, I kind of have another really busy month ahead and then I'm taking off the majority of the summer, June, July and August. Uh, I'll still be working a bit, but mostly I'm going to just be up in the middle of the woods at my trailer with my dogs and my piano and just get back to writing uh, the next batch of songs that we plan to uh, release. I have kind of started, you know, writing actually, you know, pen to paper, kind of a bunch of the stuff that we've been talking about, getting sober and so I don't know what that'll look like for me. I don't know if that's a book or just a series of kind of blog posts or what, but um, I know that when I first initially got sober, that was something that was so helpful for me was to kind of start putting these thoughts down on paper. And, uh, you know, from TikTok, seeing the way that these stories have resonated with people and how, you know, like you said, sometimes telling our story is a mirror for someone to see themselves um, and to see where things could go for them. Uh, so I feel like, yeah, that's something that I'm, I'm kind of looking into. Uh, but as someone who has a tendency to be a planner and a perfectionist, I am also really kind of loving living in this space of what will I do today? Um, let's decide in the moment. Uh, and I've never been good at that. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of just live as present as as possible um something that you know I've, I've always kind of struggled with and uh you know in sobriety 
one thing that they they really just try to make you take home is you know the adage of one day at a time and i know for me that as long as it is a day that i don't drink it was a really really beautiful day so that is kind of that's the space i'm living in these days which is pretty fucking great <laughs> i do say great. So. i love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I absolutely love it. So as you are, I want to make sure I can direct people to the right places. We'll make sure I have all of your connections and things in the show notes. And if you are on TikTok, I would encourage you to follow Theo because um, I actually probably listen to you, I don't know, at least a couple times a week on live. And I'll just mm. be doing work and I'll see that you go live. You've got a good little team of people who, which I love. Yeah. And, and I'm like, oh, great. So I just, it plays sometimes in the background while I am doing other things and which I absolutely nice. love. Yeah, absolutely love. So where are the best places for people to connect and follow and follow you more? Um, I would definitely say, yeah. So at Theo Tam's music is my handle on all platforms. I'm definitely most active on TikTok and Instagram. Um, but yeah, please find me on those platforms. I have an open door policy. I try to respond to every single DM that comes my way. Mm -hmm. um, I am all about the social aspect of social media. So by all means, send a message, say hello. I would love to get to know you and uh, have you be be a part of the community. And if you'll allow me, I'll be a part of yours. Oh, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. And your community is very welcoming. I can say that like just from some of the people yes. that I've met they're they're just amazing and absolutely love them. And this is going to release after you have a release on Thursday. What are you releasing mm -hmm. on Thursday? Uh, so I feel like I finally get to like live out my like super emo ballad fantasy right now, which is like my favorite thing. So we did, uh, we did like a super, um, intense kind of version of in the air tonight by Phil Collins, mm -hmm. which will come out this Thursday, uh, April 20th. And, uh, we're also, we just decided that we're going to do, uh, so I'm working on a cover trilogy right now. So a three song, uh, cover little mini album and uh decided that we're going to do a version of losing my religion by rem which we've kind of spun into this um you know lgbtq anthem in a way i feel like there are so many people from that community that have been so hurt by the church mm -hmm. uh and by you know people who hide behind uh the bible um i will be the first to say that i know a lot of really, really amazing, beautiful, loving, non-judgmental uh, Christians. So this is not a come down on on faith. This is a come down on uh, religion as the nasty thing it can be sometimes. Um, so I'm really, really excited for that. And then uh, another cover will complete that trilogy in uh, July and then back to originals, which hopefully I'll be writing in the next month or two. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. I did hear the um cover last night, the Losing My Religion, and it was it was really mm. good. It was very good. Oh, thank you. Very good. Yes. And I, I love the spin. I absolutely love the spin mm. and how you're thank sharing you. it. So oh I I love social media for this. I thank you for being here. I thank you for coming up on my for you page. I get pitched 
all the time for podcasts. And there's the few times where I'm like, nope, I'm going to do the pitching and I'm going to ask because I just know that they have a great story to share. And I'm grateful that you came on and really shared so much of yourself, honestly, because it's just been a beautiful episode. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I have one last quick question and it Mm -hmm. is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? Oh, I think, I think for the first time in my life, I finally wake up every day knowing that the core of who I am is enough. And I'm so thankful that at 37 years old, I finally know that. It took a long, long time (laughs) to get there. Um, And I, if there's anyone listening that still struggles with that knowing, um, I just, I'm sending so much love to you and I hope that you find it because it's there and it's not there in anyone else, not your husband, not your family, not your boss, not your kids. It's in you. Uh, And I hope that you can learn to be that voice for yourself, that you are enough. Thank you so much for sharing because Mm. you're right. It comes from us. It doesn't come from anyone else. And I guarantee you there are people who go their entire life and never have that land. It, it Mm -hmm. never hits home. So, you know, 37, amazing because sometimes again, some people will never, will never experience that. So I absolutely Mm -hmm. love it. Thank you so much for this conversation. Honestly. Yes. Thank you again for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.